La Convención de Cannabis de Nican de Illinois llega pronto a Chicago los días 4 y 5 de diciembre 2021. La ciudad de Chicago abrega 44 dispensarios de cannabis. Nican se complace de traer algunos de los mejores en la industria junto en un solo lugar. No importa su nivel de experiencia, conocimiento, todos están invitados a asistir al evento, a explorar la sala de exposiciones y escuchar docenas de aspectos de cannabis. Ya pronto llega Nikan a Chicago. Obtenga su boleto hoy en nikan.com diagonal 2021 Raya Illinois. De nuevo, n-e-c-a-n-n.com diagonal 2021 Raya Illinois. Hola, Joshua Smizer de León here, founder and host of the Paseo Podcast. Thanks for listening to the show where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community from La Isla to the diaspora. If you want to help us share the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here on Paseo, Boricua, and Chicago and around the world, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing helps more people find the show and will help you make sure you never miss an episode. Leaving a five-star rating and showing some love in the comments helps too. You can also give a donation by looking up the Paseo podcast on savechicagomedia.org. Okay, that's enough from me. Enjoy the show. Bienvenidos. This is the Paseo Podcast. I am your host, Joshua Smizer de Leon. I am joined with three special guests today. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Uh, but in short, uh, we're going to be talking about representation uh, in film, TV, uh, West Side Story for many people who are unaware is coming out this month. In fact, as we are recording this episode, uh, West Side Story is premiering to select audiences in New York City. Uh, it's going to premiere nationwide on December 10th. So this episode will be coming out just before it premieres for a general audience. Uh, but the reason I have uh, the three individuals I have with me today is because a friend of the show, Erika Gonzalez, uh, people will know her from uh, the Women's Media Center, uh, Power for Puerto Rico. She's been on the show in the past. Well, uh, division of the Women's Center, Idar has put together a package of essays uh, for publication on West Side Story specifically. And uh, these essays reflect on the, uh, on, on the, the musical, the film, uh, not the current film, but um, they reflect on the impact of West Side Story. They analyze the impact of the production. And we're talking about a production that has existed over uh, 60 years at this point. So for more than six decades, West Side Story has stood as almost like the defining production um, on Puerto Ricans in the US, uh, for better or for worse. In that same span of time, uh, a lot has really been ignored and distorted about uh, the people it claims to portray. Um, and we're going to ask the question, why is that? And, and, and um, you know, digging a bit deeper into uh, the realities that exist in the way content is created, who that content is created, who's pulling the levers of the way that content is created. But one last thing before we get into intros, we're taught uh, for context, people listening, uh, West Side Story, uh, the musical debuted in 1957, the movie 1961, um, Puerto Rican kids were treated as the poster children for juvenile delinquency. Um, it was almost like a Romeo and Juliet um, uh, at the heart of it, but yet there was so much problematic, um, there was so much problematic in imagery, music, 
um, even representation of people that who were of who was playing Puerto Ricans on the screen. And again, West Side Story is not an outlier. You know, we've seen uh, uh, negative depictions or problematic depictions of Boricuas, of, of Latina people um, through many instances in the history of cinema and on TV. Um, but today with West Side Story coming out, we're gonna dig a, a bit deeper into um, the different layers of that onion and why we should be really be aware of some of our blind spots as we maybe watch this film or discuss this film uh, with our friends, family members, so enough of my bloviating let's get into intros francis uh why don't we start with you tell our audience about yourself well my name is francis negro montaner i'm a curator filmmaker writer and scholar a professor at columbia university and one of my areas of interest has been media just as a producer as a maker of, of media but also as a critic as someone who watches media critically beautiful Okay, Grisel, why don't we uh, jump to you? What should our audience know about you? Um, hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I am a scholar, a poet, uh, a writer in general, and um, I focus on Afro-Latinidad. I focus also on a lot of film. Um, a while back, I had an essay about boyhood that uh, questioned the depiction of uh, Latinidad in that film. Um, and uh, I've also written about I Am Cuba. So uh, I'm, I'm coming from a few different angles. Happy to be here. Really happy to have you. Okay, Blanca, you're up. Last but not least, what should our audience know about you? <laughs> Hi. <laughs> uh, well, I recently retired after teaching for 15 years as an adjunct in film and media studies at Hunter. I was at Hunter for a long time. I was the founding editor of the Central Journal. Uh, so I did that for 10 years or more. And uh, I also co-directed the James Aronson Awards for Social Justice Journalism uh, from the Film and Media Department uh, at Hunter. Okay. All right, Blanca, Grisel, Francis, uh, really excited to have you on. Um, and I think, Probably why I'm most excited to have you on is because just from speaking to Erika, from looking at your bios, by the way, y'all like we're only scratching the surface on how amazing you are. But um, I'm excited to have this conversation because I have yet to have a conversation on West Side Story. I've been cooped up at home. I think it's fair to say we have three leading Latina thinkers on the show today, um, especially in a time where we're thinking about how our communities are portrayed, uh, especially in an era where we have a very much a, a racial uh, a racial unrest, a, a racial uh, justice reckoning. Um, the patriarchy is being challenged. We're 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 uh, pushing back against colonial tropes. Um, so it's it's an exciting time to really dissect what we consume uh, as viewers of film, TV. Um, now, at the beginning of the show, I did talk a little bit about West Side Story, but Blanca, I'm hoping, um, you know, for you, if you could just kind of shine a bit more light on what West Side Story is, because I think we're in a time right now where uh, TV movies are very much being democratized with streaming um, and even with something like YouTube. And I think those more authentic stories 
uh, are really what people are gravitating towards. Um, and even stories that are created by BIPOC creators, you know, looking at shows like Insecure, movies like Get Out. I mean, even like big, big budget blockbusters from big studios like Marvel, uh, where they're doing um, a movie like Black Panther with a black director, um, black wardrobe department, black cast. Um, you know, looking at that, uh, with, with all that context, context, I should say, uh, do you think something like West Side Story is out of place in this, in this day and age? You know, does, do you think this remake will, will kind of fall short? I know you haven't seen it yet. Um, but just trying to get a sense from you, you know, does this make sense to come out now? Well, the moment I heard it was coming out and that Spielberg is doing it, and I don't think it would matter who was doing it, I dreaded it. I've seen every reiteration of West Side Story, except the original play. The only thing I didn't see was the original play, which apparently the lyrics are even more upsetting than the film. Um, and I keep saying every time I've seen it, so I've seen the the, the other two plays. Uh, there was one that opened and closed right before COVID, right? And now, and now this film. Um, it's the same story. It's the same recycled story. It's a story that's stuck in the 1950s. You know, it's stuck in a narrative of, um, you know, we were relatively new migrants in large numbers to the city at that time. There was a discourse going on in the nation about juvenile delinquency. It was a way of getting women, you know, Rosie the Riveter, right? Getting women back to work, I mean, out of work and back to the house. You know, and part of that narrative was that, um, you know, kids were running around and, and being gang members, right? And women weren't home to take care of them. So it's in that context. I remember newspaper headlines, and I grew up in Brooklyn um, at the time, that actually said, I mean, Daily News, we, were, we had millions of papers um, that said that, you know, Puerto Ricans were here en masse, that we were here for welfare. I mean, those kind of things were blatant. I mean, talking about headline press in 1959, I don't know if um, people know about uh, the Cape Man, right? Salvador Grown. There was a killing in a playground in Hell's Kitchen. It's interesting because it almost, you know, there's a similar narrative to the to the play, although the play had come out in 57 and that killing was in 59. But it certainly came out in time for the film. And it highlighted, you know, Salvador Grown, who was 16, and it was a basically playground rumble. Uh, and two and two um, uh, North Americans were killed uh, by Salvador, uh, and he was uh, given the death penalty, so eventually commuted. But um, and there was a campaign about around freeing him, you know, or not freeing him, but there was a campaign about leniency. Uh, so West Side Story comes out in this huge narrative, really about gangs and juvenile delinquents, and it already played into a narrative that said that you know men of color in particular, are dangerous, right? So we are we flow right into that storyline. Um, and it hasn't changed. I mean, my thing is it hasn't changed in 60 years that when they revised this production, you know, it's still the same story, regardless of who we are and who we are and how many more complicated stories we have to tell. You know, so I'm done with it. You know, I am done with it. You know, I because... All of the energy poured into this is all about all the stories that are not told, right? All the productions that are not made um, and our own voices. And most recently, I wrote a, uh, an expanded piece on Rita Moreno. And I would have to say that my uh, relationship to West Side Story is long. 
And I haven't had the same response every time. The first time I looked at West Side Story, the main question that I had was, how is something so fake have such reality effects? The actors, most of them are not Puerto Rican. The story has makes no sense. You know, the music is not Puerto Rican. Um, the accents and so forth. And, and, and one of my responses, or at least, I'm actually, let me say two. Two of my responses is, one, this film is really not about Puerto Ricans. There's been a displacement towards uh, a group of people that the creators knew very little about in order to think through questions that did affect them as Jewish queer men. So when you think about it from that perspective and uh, people are singing someday, somewhere, we'll find a new way of living. And, and if you look at the, the downfall of the world of West Side Story, is not Puerto Ricans themselves, is when a heterosexual coupling that crosses uh, lines, uh, uh, racial lines, uh, can become a possibility, right? So you can't separate the gender politics really from the racial politics in West Side Story. They're very much intertwined. And, the, and then the character of anybody's and Baby John are these secondary characters where queerness is being uh, cited you know, uh, in, the, in the film. Uh, but then I realized something else, which was that part of the longevity of the impact of this film uh, versus the show, because the show actually wasn't that popular until the 1961 film made it world, you know, popular worldwide. Uh, and, and it is that in the absence of competing and other narratives that have the same prominence, what West Side Story contributed was it taught people to see Puerto Ricans in a certain way. And it crafted what that way was, their, their bodies. It's not, it's the accents, it's the brown face, it's the, uh, the attitude, it's how people move uh, physically, like through space, right? Um, and, and those, that primer that West Side Story um, cohered was then not only reproduced like in a loop because the film and the, and the revivals kept coming, but because other films and other media reproduced them as well. Um, the second thing though, is that Rita Moreno's character, because we have to differentiate Rita Moreno from her character. Anita's character is one that some people would call a self-hating Puerto Rican. But at the same time, her performance in that was so exceptional and phenomenal. She became the first Puerto Rican and Latina to win an Academy Award. She was recognized for that. So, those, so you were asking earlier, Joshua, about the ambivalence and the contradictions. And I think a lot of those are actually located in Rita Moreno rather than the film at large. And I recently wrote something where I actually have these recordings that I took as a child of my family watching West Side Story in Puerto Rico on TV, dubbed by Mexican actors. <laughs> wow. And I can hear my grandmother say, and it's the first line of the piece, when Rita Moreno appears, you can hear her say, esa es Rita Moreno, la nuestra. And um, so I think that, uh, so West Side Story then is also complex because not only does it have uh, an instability of how it's put together, um, it's also complex because it has a Puerto Rican performer doing exceptionally well in it. In, in the most interesting character in West Side Story, it, even if it's a stereotype, what she did with it made it actually the most memorable character of all West Side Story. 
Now, though, something? When... Francis, can I interrupt you for yeah. a second? Can you, um, sure. I find it interesting that, and I was aware that she had won the Academy Award for her performance, but don't you find that interesting that she won an award for a depiction of a Puerto Rican that the White Academy felt was worthy of awarding? Like, this is kind of like our stamp of, of approval that this was like the definitive way to act this part as a Puerto well, Rican. It's, it's... It's a very interesting question because as we speak, I'm actually writing uh, uh, the third report in a series that I've been writing about uh, Latinos. This, this one includes all groups, but it's about recognition in, in, uh, by awards, including the Oscars. And one of the preliminary conclusions I can tell you uh, is that people of color in general win for very patterned things. It's not the best performance that wins necessarily is the best performance that the Academy or the other award organizations consider good. And, and often those, uh, those performances that are considered the best follow certain uh, stereotypical patterns. So not only are the roles stereotypical, is the message that the roles convey uh, might be very much upholding premises that people have about that group of people. And you're right. I mean, you've, uh, I've heard the soundtrack from uh, the musical this, on stage and the musical on film. Um, and I want to say it's uh, America is that one song where they change some lines in particular, where they're like, I think it, I forget exactly what the, some of the lyric change, changes were, but the movie version was already awful. Basically wishing that Puerto Rico would disappear off the face of the earth um, because America is so great. Um, but completely ignoring the colonial aspects. And I know we'll, we'll, we'll kind of weave that into our conversation here today, but um, Grisel, I wanted to, to come to you really quickly. So I think people feel conflicted by West Side Story. Um, not everybody, I think, like, as you heard from Blanca, she's like, I'm done with it. No more. No mas. Um, but I think there are a lot of people that are conflicted by West Side Story because it really relies on a classic narrative of that Romeo and Juliet tragedy. And I think people are drawn to that in some respect. Um, musical lovers are drawn to it. You know, I love musicals. Um, you know, so when I hear something like West Side Story, if I didn't have the context, I'd be like, oh, yeah, take my money. Let me go watch this movie. Um so, um, you know, looking at uh, the scenes, uh, looking at uh, how exciting, how tense they are, someone like uh, Rita, Rita Moreno's uh, influence and her being in the film, her amazing performance in the film. Um, yeah, I think that can, uh, for, for some people, they might look at it with rose-colored glasses or ignore some of those blind spots when it comes to taking in really, you know, the, the uh, subtext of what this story is saying. You know, why is it important to be aware of, of these blind spots when taking in content like a West Side Story? Well, um, it's really important for a number of reasons. So the essay that I wrote about my experience with the film is kind of, uh, it goes through the process that I had with the film as a child. As someone not of Puerto Rican descent, uh, half Cuban, half Colombian, uh, identifying with the film because Latinos were represented. Um, I heard the accents, even though they were not 
any accents that I heard in my community, but I heard them and, and I thought, oh, that's who I am. And I was very, very young. Uh, I didn't even know what the lyrics said at this point. I just heard some of the music and saw the, the colorful nature of certain scenes. And I thought, oh, this is sort of my world, right? And then when I started reading the lyrics as I got older and actually started understanding the words, um, I was absolutely horrified and uh, so saddened to learn more about the film in terms of who wrote it, why it was written. It wasn't even meant to be about Latinos as, as Francis uh, Negron Mutarer uh, mentions in her uh, essay of 20 years ago. Um, so I think that we really have to be diligent in terms of what we allow to pass as our culture. Um, I know that there are Latinos out there that they will just see that there are Latinos in this film and they'll think it's a Latino film. And they'll be like, oh, well, Steven Spielberg, he's great. He's paying attention to us. No, <laughs> no, that's not what's happening. What's happening is that our stories are not being told, they're being co-opted and we're actually being given a very slick product that is uh, taking little signifiers and mashing them up into a distorted um, farce that is really hurtful towards our children because then our children don't really learn the stories that we have to tell. You know, we have movies and, and shows out there. They're not perfect, but they are there and they're written by people like us. We have Hentified, which is a widely popular show on Netflix. We have Vampires in the Bronx, which is outlandish and ridiculous, but it represents the Bronx well. Um, so I, I feel like, uh, look, I identified with anybody's. I am queer and I wanted to be anybody's who was, you know, on the, uh, the Jets side, right? Um, so if this were just a queer film, uh, I would get it. It would work for me. If it, if it had to do with the uh, discrimination against queer people, right? Because me personally, I feel like uh, Tony and Riff, they really just want to kiss. Okay. Um, but that is not what these folks made. They, they decided that they were going to steal a culture and, and have it put in place of what they really wanted to write about. And I don't, I don't think that that does anyone any good. It doesn't do any, any good for, uh, Latinos, obviously, but also the queer story that's there. It's not doing any good uh, for, for folks who are queer, just, just be honest about what this was actually supposed to be about. So, so that, that's, that's how I feel. And, and so we have to be diligent to notice these nuances. Yeah. And, uh, first off, I'm glad you worked in a vampires versus the Bronx reference, uh, amazing film. Um, and, and a great example of the really good content that is out there. That's for us by us. Um, Grisel, you had mentioned, you know, there might be people that see 
West Side Story, see Steven Spielberg's a part of the is attached to the film and think, wow, OK, look at this. Look at this white boy uh, given, you know, given a platform to some uh, BIPOC folks. This is great. You know, we're trending progress. We're trending in the right direction. But to your point, uh, that's very it's a very superficial way of looking at it for someone that might hear this and think, well, I really don't even know what my blind spots are. I don't know what I'm looking for. Um, do you have anything that helps you when you're when you're getting ready to, to watch something, you know, read something? Is there anything that you do uh, like a, almost like an internal checklist to kind of make sure that you're on the lookout for any potential blind spots? Like what do you do in practice? Um, what I do in practice is I see who wrote it first. Um, as a writer, I'm always looking to see who's writing these stories. So that's first and foremost. If it's not written by um, a person of color, a Latinx person, a person of color in general, um, then I I look to see who has uh, agency and how in the storytelling. Um, is there are are the are the characters complex? Do they have a full story arc? You know, these are things that may not that that a lot of folks may not exactly um, notice, right? A story arc, but other things to look at are, well, who is depicted as helplessly poor? Um, who is depicted as uh, having a complex story that isn't? Um, oh, we must make it, <laughs> you know, none of those stereotypes. So uh, I, I, I definitely look at that. And then I also look at, um, at gender and how, how women are represented. I look at whether there are women over 40 who are not demonized, um, you know, and, and, I, and I, I do look for, for queer characters that are actualized. I'd like to say something about um, the caveman because it, it brings us to a, a, sh a changing context between 1961 and 2021, which is that um, the Sabaloa Grand was from uh, was told from a similar perspective than West Side Story in the sense that it wasn't very nuanced and very complex. However, it was already aware that you had to use Latino actors, and uh, you had to use music that sounded or had some influence from Puerto Rican music. So it was already aware that the narrative needed a, some kind of tweak and adjustment. And this is something I think that although we don't know what the, uh, the changes that were done to West Side Story uh, 2021 version, but one of the things that's different between 1961 and 2021 is that I feel that the creators of uh, the, the show and the uh, first film uh, Puerto Ricans were really an afterthought. It was uh, an element that fitted their way that were crafting their narrative, and they didn't really care to know much more about it. In this case, uh, it seems fairly evident that uh, Spielberg and the team creating this film is very aware that pe some people are critical of it. And the second thing that's different is the audience, because in 1961, nobody really cared about Latinos. As, in fact, people weren't even really thinking that much about Latinos as an audience. They were actually starting to think about Latinos as a voting block. You know, um, whereas now a lot of the uh, adjustments that have been made is for us to go see the movie, to make it acceptable to Latinos as consumers. 
And that's a, a, a different kind of power that we have now that we really didn't have in the 1960s, which is, you know, Latinos go to the movies a lot. Uh, and they're often uh, make or break in the first weekend of a film. Like I asked the Fast and the Furious folks, right? When Latinos don't go see that movie in opening weekend, it flounders, like it doesn't recover. Um, so, so that's gonna be interesting to see how the, sh the, the very different positions that Latinos occupy in relation to media and media consumption, not so much media production. Uh, I mean, in, in past studies that I've done, you can see that per capita Latinos were better represented in movies in 1940 than now. Um, but as a, the, a sheer number of people engaged in the process of watching uh, media, uh, certainly there's a big difference between now and then. So one of the questions is how much of the, that context and also the last 10, and a, uh, 10 plus uh, years uh, of uh, Puerto Rico's subjection to U.S. capital and abandonment by the federal government during Maria uh, that has, I think, very much shifted awareness among many Puerto Ricans about the relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico and our own history in the United States will come to play uh, in watching this film and evaluating what it means, if anything. Now you bring up some really good points, um, and we, funny enough, uh, after this episode airs, our next episode is going to be analyzing uh, young Puerto Ricans on La Isla who are migrating towards um, a different outlook on Puerto Rico status that isn't the current Commonwealth status, that isn't uh, the proposed statehood status, if anything, moving more towards more agnostic views about status, if not leaning a bit more into towards independence. Um, and a lot of that points to um, La Junta, uh, Hurricane Maria, uh, a decades long recession. And, and I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, but even looking at, to your point, Francis, you know, early 1900s, Puerto Ricans giving citizenship. Okay, cool. We could put you to fight in our wars. I'm speaking as the United States here. Uh, we can send you to fight in our wars. Okay, you'll get the you'll get all the perks you know, being a voter. And then as that as that general um, as that uh, population grows, now we're looking at. Um, and this is layered, of course, but now we're looking at more Puerto Ricans that live here in the United States than live on La Isla. We're talking over 5 million compared to about 3 million on, on the island. Um, so talk about an even stronger voting block and even stronger consumer base that's just based here uh, in the U.S. Um, but something that I, you said that stood out to me was that comparison between then and now. Um, and I, I know, Francis, you've written um, in your writing, I should say, you've pointed to films like West Side Story being less about um, transforming the power dynamics between uh, white and BIPOC creatives and, and really more about white creatives responding to uh, pressure for change. And when you were talking about, oh, it's not just like their their character is Puerto Rican. It's like, oh, we should probably get a Puerto Rican to play this character. Or, you know, this is the score we want to go along with this film. It's like, ah, let's take the, let's take into account the setting. We should probably, if it's going to be in Puerto Rico, I mean, we're either going to go reggaeton or maybe some salsa. Um, but, you know, you kind of get my point. Like the, now that's yeah. kind of in the that's kind of in the general awareness. But um, you you position it as, you know, um, 
less about the dynamic shifting in the power of the BIPOC community and more about white creatives looking for ways to hold on to their power and uh, the profit that comes with that power in the movie and TV industry. Um, can you share a bit more about that, about that perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wrote a report called Latino Media Gap in 2014. It was the first of the series of reports that I've been working on. And one of the things that I learned in that process that was profound was that at the beginning, a lot of people that I interviewed said it would tell me if we could only explain to them, the executives in Hollywood, how much more money they would make if they would hire people of color behind and in front of the camera, they would do it. And by the end of the report, I realized they know that. They know that because if I know it, they know it that if they make more complex, more nuanced, more interesting uh, stories about people of color that are pretty much almost the majority of people in the United States at the moment and will definitely be in the future, uh, that they will have more viewers potentially. But they do it right because a lot of the examples that executives will give, oh, we tried this, we tried that, but they were pretty bad products in part because of the reasons that we've been discussing. They're not complex, they're not nuanced. What I realized is that imagine uh, what the, the studios and the networks and the, the press rooms, uh, the broadcasters, all these spaces would look, feel, and produce if they had a plurality of perspectives. They would not be producing the stories that uphold the status quo. They would, you know, people who have become accustomed to having access to power would now have competition from other people. So what they stand to lose by opening up the gates to all the talent of everyone, the people that are in power, is losing, in their view, is losing that power, which is not only the jobs or the profits, but it's the stories that are being told, the very stories that are being told. Who are we? What is this nation about? What is its history? What is its present? What is its future? Um, and, and I think what, what we forget is that it's really the story that makes us behave in certain ways. It's not the money. I mean, the only reason we value money is because we have a story that tells us that money is valuable, which actually it's not. Money itself is nothing. Uh, the reason that we show up for work is because we have a story that says that's what you're supposed to do because you need money to survive, which you do not. Um, and, and, uh, and so forth. So, so the control of the story, you know, what is the society, how it's organized, et cetera, what, what makes life worth living, all these fundamental questions are the ones that are being posed by mass entertainment to uphold a certain type of system. To lose control of the stories is to lose control of the direction of society. I, I, and I, I think you're right. Um, I think those are all fascinating things to explore. And they, and they actually are a good segue to one of my last questions for y'all. If you were in charge, you were the Steven Spielberg or the Kushner in this in this uh, West Side Story reboot. Uh, what would you change about the story, or is West Side Story just something we should let sink back in the ocean? <laughs> Whoever wants, I would to let take it sink. <laughs> Blanca says, "Let it sink." Okay, I would let it sink. You know, there's so many possibilities now. There are so many stories. I mean, if anybody has a perspective and something to say about the way that race operates in this country, it's Puerto Ricans, right? And if anybody understands, you know, like the the both the racial and colonial relationship, it's Puerto Ricans. I mean, we actually might have a lot to say, you know, that is way beyond the narrative of West Side Story. 
Uh, so it's, I, you know, I just, I have to say, so I just got a pass that right now, right now going on and through December 15th, you know, there's the official Latino film festival going on. You know, there's scores of films there, like short material, long material. I mean, it's an amazing, it's not as if the m makers don't exist. They exist, you know, like right now, tune into right, the festival, you know, for $45, you get a festival pass and see scores of of films by filmmakers, right? So we have the, the talent. I'm going to couple this question with another one, Blanca, put you on the spot here. So um, in addition to, you know, what would you change if you were rebooting West Side Story? If you were to create something totally different, how would you use that $100 million? What Puerto Rican story would you tell? Well, <laughs> Well, we're a complicated story, you know, it's a story, you know, it's about the Caribbean. It's a story about, the, you know, this, um, and you could do it through a love story. You could talk about, you know, this relationship with the United States, um, problematic and, and increasingly problematic. I mean, I don't know because I'm not a fiction writer, <laughs> but I know that it would have, what it would have, which none of these stories have, is a Puerto Rican eye. Right. Through a Puerto Rican eye, through Puerto Rican eyes, you know, not through Spielberg's eyes or not through these white eyes, as I you know, titled my piece. Um, and it would be uh, stories that women would tell also, because we don't have any. There's no there's no women's stories, really, in, in West Side Story. I've 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 been uh, schooled by by my uh, Puerto Rican brothers and sisters and 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 so forth. Uh, since I moved out here to New York, but also when I grew up in Chicago and Logan Square. So uh, I really would love to see someone green light um, the, the the adaptation of uh, Julia de Burgos. I, I want to say it's called a Song of Water um, by, by uh, Carmen Rivera, the playwright. I'd love to see that made into a film. That would be wonderful. Uh, Pablo Neruda called Julia de Burgos um, the voice of Latin America. Why doesn't everyone know that? Everyone should know that. So yeah, that would be great. And and that second part there, if if you didn't, if you were at the helm of West Side Story, what exactly would you change approaching that reboot? If I if if we had to remake West Side Story. Um, which I, I don't like that idea, but if, if I were at the helm of that, um, I would want it to be a queer story. So uh, here's the thing. Queer folks have always been at the center of this story, right? The people who made it are queer. And I think that they were even deflecting when they wanted to make it between uh, this argument between Jewish and, and, and Gentile folks, right? That, that was the original uh, idea, but then they, they decided to superimpose uh, Latinidad on top of that. So why not strip away all of the, the closeted pretense and, and make it into a queer story about two guys in two gangs that want to not be in gangs, they just want to be lovers. I think that would be great. Why not? 
I'd go watch that <laughs> for sure. Okay. Uh, France, these are really good. Uh, Francis, uh, same question to you. Well, if you were in charge of the West Side Story reboot, reboot, what would you change? And if you had a hundred million, if you had that same hundred million dollar budget, what Puerto Rican story would you prioritize? What would you tell? I, I, I one of the the weaknesses of West Side Story is that the characters are very underdeveloped, and the story is not very interesting. The strengths of West Side Story are the choreography and the and, and some of the, the music. Um, so to do uh, something with that material would require that you actually start crafting actual characters and an actual story. <laughs> um, and I, I sometimes I've thought I would be it would be interesting to do a meta uh, approach to it. Uh, so instead of just uh, like for instance, one of the things that Spielberg's trying to do is like if the original was pretty fake, fake accents, uh, brown face uh, actors that weren't Puerto Rican. Actually, he's, he as as uh, Paul Simon in the Caveman is trying to make it more realistic in its aesthetic. So it, it has a, a, um, it, it sticks more with certain audiences. Uh, so I think you could uh, go against that grain and and make its uh, you know its surface be more what it's about. Uh, you could also shift the perspective of who's telling the story, or actually have multiple narrators telling the story. So instead of this being about Tony and Maria, we, I can imagine uh, you know hearing uh, what's going on from Chino's perspective, who, as we know, probably ended up in the electric chair. Uh, we can hear more from Maria's, uh, from Anita's perspective. So, so one one approach could be that we shake it up. Uh, is apart from developing its characters and developing uh, a more nuanced story, is why do we tell it from multiple points of view, uh, and make those very specific and very nuanced and complex? I mean, that would be one way about it. Although, personally, as a filmmaker myself. Uh, I feel much more inclined to use that uh, $100 million uh, to both make possible new and different stories and make other people's stories possible. So for, for many uh, uh, Latino creators um, out there, you know, $100 million could seed, support, and develop the talents of many people. Uh, and 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 many uh, that are some that are beginning, but many who are, are at a point where if they just had a bit more uh, of more resources, they could really uh, uh, go to another level. And and also with a commitment to bring other people up, which is one of the things that uh, from the behind the camera uh, angle of West Side Story, they really didn't do that. Right. They really didn't bring talent up with West Side Story. They might be opening some doors to the cast, perhaps. That certainly happened in the 1961 version for Rita Moreno to a point. Um, because as she herself has said, after West Side Story, she actually got worse and worse versions of the same role. Which, But she turned from that, she refused them, and she actually developed the career that uh, she has had since then. Uh, so it is possible that some people in the cast, this is actually something that opens the door. But it's it's um, of note that the team didn't really try to bring Latino talent up uh, in the decision-making rounds of the production, yeah. uh, which is something that anybody that has $100 million to make a, Lat a Latino-themed storyline or any kind of related thing 
should have the commitment and the obligation to do, given the the levels of exclusion and marginalization of Latinos in that industry. I mean, if I just had a hundred million dollars thinking about the number of people that I can impact in my neighborhood, I live in Hermosa, not too far from Logan Square, Grisel, um, not too far from Humble Park, born and raised in Humble Park and thinking about just the number of local actors, uh, Puerto Rican, not Puerto Rican, just a part of the larger Latina community. Um, just the BIPOC community in general, how much of a benefit that $100 million could do just bringing those ideas to life. I mean, we've had uh, BIPOC creatives on the show in the past, and I know just a million dollars could completely transform their trajectory in their in their career. And again, just allowing them to live their their passion. Um, and actually, to go back to Blanca's point about, please. and this is something that Spielberg himself has said, um, that uh, this is a passion project that he's been thinking of. He loved it as a child and he he wants to, uh, he says he wants to address some social issues, uh, but he also wants to make a musical because this is part of his career arc and his legacy. And of course he picked the musical that has received the most Academy Awards in the history and one of the most recognized films of all time of any genre. Um, so, but if you think about if your motivations in making a big project actually uh, include more dimensions, you know, includes uh, providing entry points and, and, uh, and opportunities for um, the group of people that allegedly is being depicted and whose story is allegedly being told, you, you make so much more of an impact um, and open and make possible that other people a multiplicity, not just one more person, because this is also like the Lima Noel Miranda syndrome a little bit, you know, that, that Hollywood often has opened the door for one. So you use these projects to actually open the door for many whose collective efforts are gonna be making some changes and, and, and making possible some transformations that are necessary. Hey there. We want to take a moment to thank our partners, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center of Chicago and the Chicago Independent Media Alliance for their support. This show would not be possible without them. And shout out to our amazing podcast team. Learn more about them and the show by visiting our website, paseomedia.org. Enjoy the rest of the show. I was watching Jasmine Camacho Quinn's performance at the Tokyo Olympics. And I remember how proud I was seeing her hoist up a gold medal, Puerto Rico's only sec second only ever gold medal. And then all of a sudden I see all this chatter of people questioning her Boricua card. So that got me thinking, you know, what does being Puerto Rican mean? So we're asking all of our guests that. That's uh, a heavy question. You can take it wherever you want. Grisel, I know you aren't Puerto Rican. You're half Cuban and Colombian, right? Um, but as I told you before we started recording, you are more than welcome to the Boricua barbecue. Um, so for you, it's just, you know, what does being Cuban, Colombian mean to you? Um, but Blanca, why don't we start with you? What does Puerto Rican mean to you? Well, it means something about our relationship to the U.S. Because, I mean, so it's, a, it's where I was born. Right. So, you know, it's a birthplace. It's a it's a although as I had to uh, clarify with someone who asked me what my hometown was. And I had to say Brooklyn <laughs> because <laughs> I grew up in Brooklyn, not in my US. Uh, but it's the birthplace, but it's the birthplace of my parents and it's the culture I was raised in. You know, so so it's it's the horse. Yeah, we trail like 
it's saying bendición when you leave the house. You know, it's 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 respect for your elders, even if they're mean and rude to you. <laughs> um, it's and it is a generational story. You know, it's my great grandmother. You know, talking about how significant it was that she was born in 1875 because slavery had been abolished in 1873 and her mother had been a slave. So being Puerto Rican is all of those, you know, basically it really is your family line. It really is your, your ancestors, right? And it really is all of that. They pass on to you. Um, and a lot of that is about survival, right? And pride, right? Because that's the other part of surviving is, is. so legal status is irrelevant. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'm a Puerto Rican citizen, whether we're a nation or not, you know, and then I'm an American citizen, although I'd say I'm a New Yorker, you know, more than anything else. I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling very much at home, you know, out in the boondocks or in the South for that matter. I mean, there are places where I feel totally alien, you know, in this country uh, that has to do with race. So, um, so it's complicated, you know, but it really is a lot about, heritage and culture and family, no matter where I live. I appreciate that. Um, Francis, what about you? What does being Puerto Rican mean to you? To me, being Puerto Rican uh, is a way to be, see, and inhabit the world from a particular perspective. People, uh, certainly as other people, um, I have favorite foods that are eaten more in Puerto Rico than other places. I have a definite attachment to place. I grew up in Puerto Rico, uh, although at this point in time, I have lived only 17 years of my life in Puerto Rico and the vast majority of my adult or all my adult life in the United States. However, those years were extremely formative. But if I think about what is it that I carry everywhere? Even when in, in, in a part of the world that I cannot make tatostong, or even a part of the world where I don't hear uh, the kind of Spanish that we speak or the kind of English that we speak, I think what I carry with me everywhere is the way I see the world, the way I relate to other people as mediated by that sense of self that's historically produced and, and also by our experiences in our in our families and so forth. That's really what I carry. And I remember one day I was um, you know, driving with a friend and we were actually talking about this and how people often say it's about food, pasteles, or it's about uh, our Spanish, or it's about uh, a place. Uh, and, and what he said that really resonated with me is that we know what is it to be oppressed in a particular way. And that creates a certain kind of bridge to understanding other people. So it's not only that it's the way that I view the world, I relate to other people, it's also a way that I communicate with other people and coalesce and, and build with others that have uh, experienced it that in some way are, are similar, structurally similar uh, in the sense that they have also had to face um, uh, life, you know, living in a place that's disadvantage in the in historically and in the global capitalist system. So in that sense, I mean, Grisel, I, I, I'm, I'm curious uh, uh, what you have to say, because I feel that it, it's those histories that we have uh, that uh, and that sense of self that we develop thinking through those stories 
that make us capable to relate to other people and their stories. And the interesting thing is that uh, experiments or, or efforts like in the Heights were betting on the opposite. They were betting that the more generic you make the Latinidad, the more accessible it is to everyone and everybody can subscribe to it. But in fact, the more specific that you make it in what are those challenges that people face uh, and how power limits uh, their capacity and puts obstacles in the way is actually what makes it easier to connect to someone else. Which going back to your comment about uh, uh, Camacho Quinn, one of the things that nobody said about her win that I find so profound uh, is that the event that she won in, it's a race with obstacles. So uh, an Afro-Puerto Rican woman that is, of course, the best in the world <laughs> at the event where you have to run, meet the obstacles, and win and come on the other side, you know? Uh, so that's one of the things that I felt about her victory, that she was, in a way, exemplifying. Blanca, you were saying earlier, how do we get out of this? You know, she was exemplifying, like, we are going to meet all these obstacles, but we are going to get through it. And that's a, a, a very profound message in the crisis moment that we find ourselves. And one, I think one of the resonant dimensions of her win. Oh, I don't know if she had one in, I don't, I don't know, another type of event. I'm not sure it would have been as impactful. Yeah, no, and I, I didn't think about it that way either. I mean, talk about La Brega, president of sport, one obstacle over another just to like get to the finish line. Um, so I, I, I appreciate that lens. Um, Gris, Grisel, what, what about you? Um, what does being Colombian and, and Cuban mean to you? Well, uh, first of all, I just want to, Thank you for um, even allowing me to, to answer this question, considering that normally it would be focused on Puerto Rico. So I, I appreciate that. Um, I come from a slightly different perspective in that um, I'm half, right? Half Cuban, half Colombian, not born in either country, born in Chicago. Um, I grew up around... Mexicanos, Puerto Ricanos, Polacos, okay, uh, Polish folks. Um, I married a Puerto Rican. Uh, I eat Puerto Rican food more often than I ever eat uh, Colombian food, although there are really good Colombian restaurants uh, <laughs> in the New York area. Um, I, uh, I have always felt uh, like an outsider. And in fact, that's that's the anthology that I edited for, for Rutledge. It's Latina Outsiders Remaking Latina Identity. And it's really about this perspective of, of people who are not only, we're already on the periphery within US culture, but there are those of us within Latinidad who still feel, even within Latinidad, to be on the periphery, whether it's because we're queer, whether it's because uh, of our racial makeup, um, whether it's because we just interpret the world differently. We have a different perspective. Mm -hmm. I grew up as a punk, right? A punk rocker. So I, um, I, I find that uh, my outsider perspective is incredibly important um, 
in terms of navigating my Latinidad, I feel like there's no way that I would be able to survive not only living in the U.S., but living within a patriarchal uh, Latino family at times, um, a, uh, a world that is, is not friendly to queer folks. It's that outsider perspective. And honestly, I feel like Latin America really understands that outsider perspective. You see it in all yeah. of the literature. Um, That's true. And I would say that that is probably at the core of my particular brand of Latinidad. It's this, uh, this perspective that is a little bit farther back, that sees a larger mass of what's going on. It's not that close up view that's centered, it's, it's decentered and it can see more of the plate spinning and whatever is going on. And, and that allows for a lot of empathy. So, so people who have this perspective are not willing to do what some of the people who are centered all the time are willing to do for that attention. We just don't want to hurt people that way. We would prefer that more stories get told and make less money. We really would. Um, so that's, that's, I, I hope that says so what it, yeah. I, it's not specifically Colombian or Cuban. It's more of a, an amalgam of all these different things. Yeah. Well, and I think most importantly, that's your truth. That's your, that's the lens that you're seeing identity through. Um, you know, I think that's what matters first and foremost, speaking of, you know, speaking your truth, putting your thoughts out there for people to digest, make them think about things from a different perspective. Um, we are going to link each of your essays that were posted to Idar um, in the show notes. So people listening or watching on YouTube, you can see that there. Um, but I just want to give the, the website really quickly for everybody in case um, you can't get to the show notes for whatever reason. But uh, to see uh, Francis, Griselas and Blanca's uh, essays, you can go to womensmediacenter.com slash Idar. Uh, that's spelled uh, just I dare, I-D-A-R-E, Women's Media Center. Go check it out. Um, but for people that really enjoyed our conversation and want to keep up with each of you, um, how can people do that? Do you have a social media account uh, or, or accounts, uh, website? Uh, give us all the things. What should we know? Blanca, why don't we start with you? Well, you can find me on Facebook, that dinosaur. <laughs> and, uh, and the email... <laughs> and the email is P R O F Prof B V my initials B as in Blanca V as in Victor at yahoo.com. Grisel, what about you? Um, I'm on uh, Facebook, of course, but also Instagram and Twitter. And it's usually some version of Grisel Y Acosta, Grisel Yolanda Acosta. Uh, Dr. Griselda goes like it's it's some version of that. So you can find me. Um, and then uh, my website is grito.org. Uh, and I think I also have a Dr. Griselda Costa link tree that has all my upcoming things. And of course, this will be linked on there as well. OK, Francis, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat of a reluctant social media participant, uh, okay. but I do have a Facebook uh, and I do post uh, my work there mostly. 
and uh, and I do have a Twitter account. I'm Francis Negron. Uh, I'm mostly retweet things there. Um, so to to follow more what I'm doing, I think the Facebook I, I try to actually use it as a, a way to communicate, but also a kind of archive that people can go through to see what's been happening uh, with the work. All right, Francis Negron Montaner, Blanca Vasquez, and Grisel Acosta. Thank you so much for being on the Paseo podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you, Joshua. A lot to think about in that discussion for sure, but I'm really interested to hear what you think. What stories would you bring to life in film or TV with a $100 million budget? Let us know by using the hashtags Baseo Podcast and WMCLDARE. Before I sign off, I want to share some Puerto Rican stories that are on my radar that I think would be worth you reading more into. Number one, with more than 9.1 billion streams this year on Spotify, Bad Bunny is the most streamed artist of 2021. The second most streamed artist and most streamed female artist of the year is Taylor Swift. That's followed by BTS, Drake, and Justin Bieber. In 2020, fun fact, if you didn't already know, Bad Bunny was also the number one streamed artist. So he's a back-to-back -back champ at the moment. Uh, special thanks to Pop Sugar for that story. Number two. The Washington Post recently shared a feature on Justino Diaz. From Puerto Rico to the world's greatest stages, Diaz has become a well-respected and celebrated bass baritonist. His 40-year career as a performer and his decades of advocacy and engagement with the operatic arts. I think that's a, the way you say people that are in the opera world. But if you know, let me know if I got that wrong. Um, but uh, his advocacy and engagement with the operatic arts has made him an undersung hero of American opera today. Well, this year, he is going to be one of the Kennedy Center honorees, along with Barry Gordy, Bette Midler, Lorne Michaels, and Joni Mitchell. Uh, opera is only allotted a handful of those Kennedy honors per era, so this is a really big deal. The article is pretty good, so uh, if you're interested in kind of looking back at uh, his over four decades long career, definitely give it a read when you can. Number three. NBC 10 Philadelphia reported that scientists in Philadelphia are investigating and researching a rare genetic disorder called TBCK syndrome. It impacts children with Puerto Rican ancestry uh, based off their, their, their recent findings. Um, some call it the Boricua gene. Now, uh, researchers have found that there is a high number of people with Puerto Rican ancestry who have this disease, um, but also for perspective, there are less than 100 children in the world that have it that they know of at this point in time. Uh, but the effects are severe. Uh, essentially, it's uh, severe neurological conditions like uh, struggling to walk, speak, or even hold up your head. So this syndrome only occurs when two carriers of this mutation have a baby. That means someone can pass down the mutation without the effects being seen unless they are with someone who also has that same mutation. Researchers think this syndrome is due to a limited pool, a quote unquote, uh, limited pool of DNA from Spanish colonizers and the geographic position of Puerto Rico as an island. So I think that's basically just a nice way of saying incest amongst colonizers and potentially others on the island has led to this mutation being passed on uh, through generations. Uh, there's not a ton more out there on this syndrome just yet, but it's definitely something to keep on your radar to look more into. And finally, throwing this last one in here because I'm a baseball fan, um, definitely a big Chicago baseball fan. Uh, so uh, it's pretty big uh, Boricua baseball news, if you will. 
uh, Javier Baez, El Mago, has decided to take his talents to the Detroit Tigers, deciding not to re-sign with the New York Mets. Uh, really happy for him, but sad not to see him playing with uh, Lindor anymore over there in, in NYC because, uh, man, they were pretty fun to watch. So anyway, okay, that's all I have for the news today, mi gente. That's our show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did or didn't, let us know, podcast at gmail.com or at podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and Instagram. Just follow us on everything. You can also show your support for the show by subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing and leaving a five-star rating or whatever the highest rating is on the streaming platform you're listening to this on really helps more people find the show. And like I mentioned before, uh, showing some love in the comments always helps. It's always good to see that. And we, we might actually shout you out on the show. So, uh, keep those positive comments coming. Keep that love coming. Uh, you can also follow us on social media, including our YouTube channel. I know I said you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And I said, Hey, you can follow us on all the things. I didn't tell you about our YouTube channel. Um, go follow us, find us on YouTube. Just type in Basel podcast. We'll pop right up. Uh, really help us uh, if you haven't already subscribe to the channel help us get to 100 subscribers we're only three away so will you be the magical three help us out uh, on our next episode we're going to cover the changing sentiment among young puerto ricans towards puerto rico politics and independent status for puerto rico uh, until then as always if you want to pitch a story idea, nominate yourself or someone else for an interview or share a new story that you'd like us to discuss on the show, visit our website, baseomedia.org, to do just that. See you in two weeks. Cuídate.